0: You are listening to The Apex Hour, hosted by Ryan Paul, on KSUU Thunder 91.1. This show allows more personal time with our guests, allowing them to give us their stories and opinions. We will also give you new music to listen to, hoping you
1: enjoy some new sounds and genres. Welcome to this episode of The Apex Hour. Welcome to The Apex Radio Hour. Thank you, Drees. I'm assistant producer Evan Miller. I'm joined with Apex director and professor of history, Ryan Paul, and our special guest, Derek Charles Livingston. I'm turning it over to you, Ryan.
2: Thanks, Evan. We are so excited to have Derek Livingston with us today. Derek is the interim artistic director for the Utah Shakespeare Festival and the director of New Play Development. And we'll get into a lot of that here in a few minutes. Derek, welcome to the Apex Radio Hour. We're glad to have you.
3: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
2: One of the things that we'd like to start with always here is kind of a how do we get to now. So can you just briefly talk about what led you to SUU to where you are here now?
3: Sure. I studied theater in college. Uh, I went to college with the intention of being a political science major. I had already loved theater. Uh, my high school really didn't offer it, uh, which is something I noticed really different from a lot of the experience of uh, people here in Utah, is that they have really strong theater programs in their high schools, and mine really didn't have one. Although uh, my mother did make sure that we attended performing arts uh, in Sacramento, where I grew up, and I never really thought it was a possibility or something for me to be able to pursue in, in, in college. I was fortunate enough to attend school with a really group of very talented people. (laughs) I laugh because some of them have just proven how talented they were. For example, two people in my class alone have Tony Awards for their work in theater. And got a chance to do theater with some really great students and with really great professors and found that was really where my heart and passion lie. Following college, I had an internship at an organization called Playwrights Horizons in the early 90s. And... Playwrights Horizons had, within the previous six years, produced three Pulitzer Prize-winning works. And so it was really the hot theater off-Broadway. And so it was a great place to be engaged with professionals who were doing theater at the highest level in New York City. You know, for example, uh, we produced a new work by this up-and-coming Broadway composing team named Aarons and Flaherty, who went on to pin Ragtime. Uh, as well as the film Anastasia. A lot of people know them from Susicle the Musical. And the show that we worked on that year was Once on This Island, which a couple of years ago won the Tony for Best Revival of a Musical. And one of my classmates was a producer on it, so that's one of those Tony Award winners there. And also this, uh, this Broadway composer a few people have heard of named Stephen Sondheim was doing a uh, workshop of a new work of his then called Assassins. And so you know, so for a year, and then on top of that, William Finn was doing the second part of the third part of his Marvin trilogy, and that was called Falsetto Land, and now it's performed together as Falsettos, uh, the second part and the third part. And in fact, it was performed last year here at SUU by the theater department by the undergraduates. And so in that year, I was exposed to and meeting uh, some of New York's greatest theater professionals and theater makers. Oh, I forgot also the play The Heidi Chronicles, which was one of those Pulitzer Prize winners, had started at Playwrights the year before and was then on Broadway. And so one of my jobs was to serve as a casting assistant on this Broadway play. And I remember sitting in the stage manager's office waiting for an actor named Tony Shaloub mm-hmm. to show up. <laughs> <laughs> to read with Brooke Adams, uh, who was then playing uh, Heidi on Broadway. And a lot of people, of course, know Tony Shalhoub later from Monk. And sitting in the stage manager's office and talking to Wendy Wasserstein, who was you know, the, the first American woman to win a Pulitzer Prize and a Tony Award and Drama Desk Award, now a Critics Circle Award, uh, as a playwright for the play Heidi Chronicles. And I just remember thinking she was so human and so down-to-earth. And if you read her play, you saw all the elements that were in there. And funny side story is, I, so I was less than a year out of Brown. And I remember her saying, oh, my niece went to Brown. Did you know her? And I said, i not thinking at all. I said, oh, no, who's your niece? And she said, Melissa Levis. And it turned out I had directed Melissa in her first show at Brown, and she directed me my last show at Brown. But that was the level of people. So I came out of this really great college experience. And my first year uh, out of college, I was you know immediately immersed in this world of amazing theater professionals. And I think that really sort of set a standard for me that I still try to hold for myself uh, and in my work. Uh I did not like living in New York. So I left the internship because while well, I was a starving intern and uh the Sally May wanted me to start paying back my, my student loans and I'd gone to an Ivy League school, so it was very expensive. Uh and so I got a job as an assistant at a talent agency, a boutique talent agency in New York. And again, some really great talent so that uh, among the clients we represented was a woman named Rebecca Luker, who has since passed on. But at the time, she was the lead in uh, Phantom of the Opera. And a guy named Rocky Carroll, who went on that year to get a Tony nomination for the original production of The Piano Lesson. And a lot of people know him from NCIS, I can't remember the name of the show. Uh, but he's, uh, I think he's the, the commander of the team or, or something there. He's the person they all report to. Um, Then one of our other clients uh, also got a Tony nomination that year for a revival of Sweeney Todd. And so, you know, these are people I was talking with on a daily basis and coming in and out of our offices. And I was going to see their work and having a chance to talk to them about their work, too. So it was a great it was a continuance of a great education I got as an undergraduate. But didn't like New York, really couldn't afford to live there. Uh, and decided, uh, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go back to Providence where I'd gone to college. And I knew I could get a job because I knew my, my degree carried a great deal of cachet, particularly in, in Rhode Island where I'd gone to school. And within a short period of time, I got a job uh, at an organization called Rhode Island Project AIDS as uh, an AIDS prevention educator. I was, so this was 1991, I guess, early 91. So my my job title and it's not the only time this has happened to me. Actually, it happened three more, two more times. I had gay in my job title. I was a gay community health educator for Rhode Island Project AIDS, and my job was to design HIV prevention programs for gay men and, and men who didn't necessarily identify with gay, but uh, who were having had other men as their intimate partners. And it was interesting because this was already six years into the, nine years into the AIDS crisis, and this organization was just now getting had done that work in general, but was the first time I'd hired somebody specifically for that population. I was all over 22 years old and designing these programs and doing various um, outreaches, uh, which, in fact, I drew a lot of my theater doing that because it called me to be in the public a lot, talking about very sensitive topics, very serious topics, but uh, in a humorous way in terms of getting people to change their behaviors and to see the wisdom in doing so. While I was doing that, There's a great deal of activism in um, particularly this part of my life, so I also started working with perpetrators of domestic violence, men um, in a re-education program for male perpetrators of domestic violence, because I really believe firmly that if the violence in women's lives was going to end, men had to be part of that and had to be a very important part of that, and it was important for men to hear that message from other men. And then I uh, also got involved in the early stages of what became the big title, 1993 March on Washington for Gay, Lesbian, Buy, and Equal Rights and Liberation, which to this day is still the largest LGBT rights march on Washington in U.S. history. And we're about i can't believe we're about to celebrate our our 30th anniversary. And, you know, I was just a kid. I wasn't even five years out of college when that happened. So I— did all that, and then after the march, uh, which was two years of my life, and you know, found me on the front, literally on the front pages of the New York Times and papers across the country, and doing national interviewing and being a spokesperson at the highest level, and almost in a meeting with the president of the United States kind of thing. I always knew I wanted to go to film school That's a compliment to my theater education. I moved to North Carolina to head a political action committee, and while there, I rediscovered theater, and so I started acting again and was having a greater success getting really important roles than I ever had in college because I was in college with such a talented group of people. <laughs> and I uh, realized, oh, I could actually do this. I'm actually not bad at this. And so I acted continuously in North Carolina and, and started directing again, which I had done since college, and then moved to Philadelphia with an acting fellowship and, again, acted continuously there for two years as a professional actor Earned all my points to join Actors' Equity, um, but decided not to do it because as a compliment to my theater work, I wanted to go to film school, and I was fortunate enough to be accepted to UCLA's film school. And so I, I moved across the country to uh, go to film school at UCLA. And and anyone who has done theater will tell you that the power and the draw of theater is overwhelming, and that you know you're doing theater correctly when it ruins your life, when it, it pushes everything out of the way. So... Um, I actually was in, uh, had finished my first year of film school, and found myself doing two shows as an actor in Los Angeles, and then got a um, a chance to direct a show in the theater department while I was still in film school. And I kept missing one of my film school classes. It was the main track that I needed to be on in my second year of film school, and I got kicked out of the class. and the department wasn't quite sure what to do with me because no one had ever got kicked out of class. Now, the the instructor was absolutely right. I, I wasn't showing up or I kept showing up. So I have to leave. I have to go to rehearsal. I had this thing happening in the theater. And so this other professor took me into a special track, which is not the track that I, I wanted to be on. Uh, but, it was this, but it was this thing where theater just was this draw for me. And I think within a year, I was the artistic director of Celebration Theater in Los Angeles, which is the second continuously operating uh, LGBT theater in the country, and it still is there, Um, and did some really great, amazing work uh, for four years while heading that theater. And in fact, one of the local papers, it was a prestigious weekly paper, the LA Weekly, named me one of the 20 people changing the face of theater in Los Angeles during that time period. And in terms of film school, this is why it took me 13 years to actually get a degree in film school, because I was doing theater. (laughs) After so running celebration for a few years I left to finally finish my degree then wound up in San Diego again uh, doing theater and this was during the downturn so there was a there was a writers strike in Los Angeles and the way I was making my money as an artist primarily was as a personal trainer between doing theater gigs and nobody had extra income it was uh, an economic downturn and there was a writers strike in Los Angeles and so a friend of mine in San Diego took me in, and I shortly thereafter got a job with uh, a few theaters, uh, one of which was an organization called Playwrights Project as a director of new play development. Um, and in college, I had done a great deal of new play development under the guise of a woman named Paula Vogel, who a lot of people know because she won the Pulitzer Prize a few, many years ago now for a play called How I Learned to Drive. And her most one of her most rec- recent plays was on Broadway, uh, Indecent, and I uh, won the Tony Award. And if you look at like half of the Pulitzer Prize winning playwrights in the last 20 years, Paula at some point was one of, was was their teacher. Uh, so she's an extremely talented and gifted playwright and teacher as well. And so she was one of the early people in my life. And um, so I came to San Diego. I had that experience. And, and my theater in Los Angeles concentrated on either new plays or plays that were new to Los Angeles as under the, our mission of LG, doing LGBT work. And so it was kind of a really natural fit for me. And in San Diego, at some point, I was the head of four or five different new play development processes and really developed a method and process and developed and and adapted other processes for doing new play work. And again, was working with some of the the, the leading theaters in town, a, a medium-sized theater called Signet Theater. The working with professionals at the Old Globe Theater and La Jolla Playhouse, which are two of the larger regional theaters in the country. Um, San Diego is fortunate to have two major regional theaters that regularly send work to prior, to Broadway and develop new work. And so, I was associated in working with their professionals and the whole town was a great theater community that was really encouraging and a great place as a new play developer to have opportunities to do new work and to bring artists into that. I really wanted to use that skill as an artistic director. There really was no job for me in San Diego, and I wasn't having much success looking for work on the national landscape. In fact, six times, I think, I was the finalist to be the artistic director of some theater in the country and when as a finalist that's not just an interview that's you go to that place you spend the weekend you meet the boards, you meet major donors you meet the staff you present a season you meet stakeholders in the community so the, <laughs> and so that that really wasn't ha- nothing was uh, nothing was happening i was getting very close but i wasn't ultimately getting a position and so I said, well, maybe it's time to look at something else. At this point, I was in my hit, hitting my mid-40s, really had no retirement, and was concerned about that, and said, well, I guess I spent enough time as an artist and an activist. I guess it's now time to start building my retirement fund. And I got a job as an arts administrator with an organization uh, called Big Apple Performing Arts, which is the uh, umbrella organization of the New York City Gay Men's Corps, so a fairly major major arts organization in New York. And that was just not a fit for me, and I I left after six months. But having gotten that job because of the wonders of the internet, um, and you can really apply for a job anywhere, and not wanting to spend all my money living in the New York City area, which is a very exciting and dynamic place in which to live, but also uh, a place that can suck your money really quickly. I said, well, where can I live where it's warm and there are good gyms? Uh, side note, I was an obese kid who slimmed down to normal weight and then started uh, bodybuilding. Um, and so gyms are kind of an important thing to me. So, where is it warm where there are the good gyms uh, and where there are urban comforts and it's not too expensive? And uh, Las Vegas, interestingly enough, fit all those bills. And so I, I moved to Las Vegas and. I had previously for the past twenty years, mostly in theater, worked as a new play developer or a director and directed a lot of plays in uh, Los Angeles as well as San Diego. But I started acting again. in fact, uh, as I was talking to your producer, uh, he asked me one of my the, what, is, what is one of my favorite plays that I've done and it was during that period that I did a play called The Whipping Man, uh, which, as an actor was one of my favorite plays and I also that was the first time I did Thurgood, which I did the excerpt for earlier today as part of Apex at SUU. And, but con- continually was trying to get back into artistic direction, and so was applying for jobs in medium-sized theaters as an artistic director, larger theaters, as an associate artistic director. And turns out the Utah Shakespeare Festival was looking for a director of new play development to lead its new, director- its new play program and an artistic associate to assist the artistic director in his work along with a- another artistic associate. And I said, oh, I, I could do that. I've, every, every task that was on the, the job description list, I had fulfilled. Never occurred to me that I would live in Utah. Never occurred to me that I would actually get the job because the Utah Shakespeare Festival is a, is a fairly major theater regional theater, Lord B Theater, a Tony Award winning theater um, that has a great reputation. But I applied for the job and didn't hear anything for months. And I said, well, see, I was right. I didn't, I didn't get that job. But now that I'm in the organization, I realize the overwhelming tasks that the staff has to face on a daily basis. I know why it took a while. So then I, I had an interview. And then I was invited up to the festival um, in a, a shortened version of, of those, you know, those finest interviews I did before. Met the staff, presented a season. I <laughs> uh, had lunch with the executive producer and the artistic director. And then shortly thereafter was offered the job and said, oh, wow. I'm I'm moving to Utah. I'm moving to small town Utah. Okay, <laughs> not necessarily warm. <laughs> not necessarily warm. I'm assuming the
2: gyms are okay. Not compared
3: to the gyms in Las Vegas. Urban <laughs> benefits. <laughs> so only two grocery stores. None of them open twenty four hours. <laughs> so I think that it's
2: interesting that, that all of these things that you have talked about really involve story, right? I yeah. mean, this idea of not only activism, but but theater and film. I mean story is a really important part of your life. And so when we come back from our first break, I want to to kind of talk about some of these fundamental stories in your life that kind of create these light bulb moments to see where you are and how you produce theater. So as as Listeners know during our show, we ask our guests to select some songs, a playlist, if you will, and we choose from some of those to talk about songs that that mean something to them. So the first song we're going to hear today is our first break is Don't Rain On My Parade. From Funny Girl, right, and and Barbara Streisand. So can you give us a brief idea of what that is or why that's important?
3: The network TV premiere of Funny Girl on TV, uh, I saw it and Barbara Streisand played this skinny young Jewish girl who didn't have a lot of confidence in herself and her looks. And so in order to get past that as an entertainer, she had to make jokes and they had to be self-effacing jokes. And I remember that there was a moment when she's singing a song, she's supposed to be this beautiful bride and she couldn't sing it that way because she didn't see herself. And so she stuck a pillow under her stomach. So she looked like a pregnant bride. So the joke was that she had to get married. And the five-year-old in me understood that joke. And immediately I understood that dynamic and and also the talented performer, and the fact she was playing a performer. So I think that was one of those things that really sort of set the direction for my life. And the song itself is such a song. It's one of the seminal songs from the show. Uh, but the song itself is such a song of of self empowerment and being of determination. And so it's not my favorite song from the show, but it's probably the one that represents my experience with the film and what it does, what it says, and did to me.
2: So. Great. So let's hear "Don't Rant on Parade" <laughs> from Barbra Streisand.
4: I guess I didn't make it But whether I'm the rose of sheer perfection Or freckle on the nose of life's complexion The cinder of the shiny. Simply gotta march, my heart's a drummer Don't bring around a cloud of rain on my parade I'm gonna live and live now Get what I want, I know how One roll for the whole shebang One throw, that bell will go clang Eye on the target and wham One shot, one gunshot and bam! Hey, Mr. R Oh my love.
1: Rain on My Parade by Barbara Streisand on Thunder 91. You're listening to the Apex Radio Hour and I'm turning it back to you, Ryan.
2: Thanks, Evan. So let's talk about some of these fundamental stories, if you will, of, of your life and, and things that in these couple moments where you realize not necessarily that, that, that theater matters, but maybe that is it, but that that there's something more to life than just getting a job in school, those kinds of things.
3: Yeah. We've talked in the past, and I know that one of the stories I told you, uh, I've shared with your class, as a recall, if you did my biography, this probably would be one of those moments in his life where you, that, that shaped and you could draw everything back to that moment. Uh, I remember being in uh, second or third grade. And at that point, you know, it was the mid-70s. And so the civil rights movement must have seemed like miles and years and years before, but, you know, looking back on it now, it was only a few years before. And I remember we were sitting in an assembly. You have to say, I went to and pretty much an all-black, mostly uh, black and Latino elementary and junior high and high school. That was my experience uh, growing up in Sacramento. And our principal, Hortense Hurdle, now there's a name for you, very tall, stylish woman who was very direct, uh, was showing us a documentary of the civil rights movement. And there was the, in the documentary, there were kids who were marching for voting rights. And the fire department turned water hoses on them, and they were sort of blown over. And I'm sure for us as kids, it looked like something out of a cartoon. Um, And certainly, that I don't think it occurred to us as children that that would really happen to us. I think the only time we ever saw something like that was like in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. And I remember we laughed. Hortense Hurdle stopped that projector, and you could hear the you know the clicking of the projector stop. And she said, "Do you realize what you're seeing? So this is real. So these people did this for you." And it was at that moment that I realized that, uh, as my Angela would later say, each of us, descendant of some passed-on traveler, has been paid for, right? That my the, the experiences I've had since then and the opportunities I've had as an African-American man growing up in post-Jim Crow, post-Civil Rights America, um, the advantages I've had had to be because somebody did something for me to advantage, for me to change. You know, it's interesting in the, the play Thurgood, um, I tell this story of – of having uh, of of a group of, of black students buying theater tickets, movie tickets, and then having to go sit in a crow's nest. Well, when my grandmother told the story of seeing Gone with the Wind," she saw it from the colored balcony. My my mother, as as an adolescent on the radio on a radio show, won free tickets to the Arthur Murray Dance Studio, and when she showed up to claim her prize, she was refused that prize, and. Just one generation later, I can't imagine those experiences happening to me. But it wasn't because people suddenly saw the light. It's because some people made them feel the heat. And in, in that moment that Hortense Hurdle talked about or showed us was people taking the heat, bringing the heat to other people so that I could have a better life.
2: Does that ex- Did that experience come back to you in many ways? I mean, so do you reflect on that as part of not just your idea of, why story matters or why history is important, but but why one individual standing up is critical?
3: I think it, I, it's funny. I don't often reflect on the story, but I think that the experience was really ingrained in me that you can't sit by silently in the face of oppression or in the face of discrimination and do nothing about it. And, you know, many of the, the important moments and the things that I've done in my life – as both an african american man and as a gay man i think it really been shaped by the belief that if i want things to be better if i want the next generation or or people in my generation or my my colleagues my cohort to be better that that i had to participate in, in being that change i think that's and i you know it, it probably goes back largely to that moment
2: so as a as a child in california i mean was was race a topic in your household. And I bring that up because in the play Thurgood, you know, there's this scene where Thurgood Marshall talks about his father and they go to the court together and then the the dad would come back and kind of grill young Thurgood about about the court the cases that they saw. I mean was this a conversation that was in your around your dinner table?
3: I don't think necessarily in that way that it was in Thurgood's house, but I don't think growing up working class in America as an African-American person where you don't contemplate race in some way, shape, or form, or the idea that you're not part of the majority isn't part of your consciousness and that you don't act and reflect on that. You know, I remember it's sad. I looked it up recently. There is currently no television program on major network TV that focuses on an African-American family. Think about that for a second. (laughs) We are absent from the TV landscape, even in 2023, Eight years after Barack Obama was was, was in the White House, um, and, but when I was growing up, we had good times and what's happening, and uh, um, the Jeffersons and the Jeffersons, um, and so we knew that those shows were special and they were different because they were depicting a, a family life that was not shown to a lot of other people. And indeed, you know, it it, it had an impact on this nation because people got a chance to see African Americans in a way that they had not before. You have to think ten years even before that that didn't exist on television. Um, and then, you know, you jump ahead 20 years to the Cosby show where you had an African-American family headed by a doctor and a lawyer, you know, not just professionals, but high, the most highly sought after or, or regarded professionals. And they were raising a family that looked like mine, that had conversations that my family had, but also had conversations that a family would just have. And so in many ways, that was revolutionary and landmark, uh, and a landmark. And it, it, it was had me when I thought about, wow, in 2023 – American audiences are not getting that chance to see those families.
2: Especially in the diversity of ways in which we can transmit television. Yes. Right? I mean, back when, when you and I were, were kids, there were really, what, four or five channels that we yeah. had to click through. No yeah. remotes yeah. or anything like that. And, <laughs> you had to touch and, the TV. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now th- there's access to to any number of mediums yeah. in which to communicate those messages.
3: And I, I wasn't when I said major network, but... Um, if it's not happening on the major networks, which is still the, the place that draws a lot, the number greatest number of eyeballs, then there still is an absence there. I'm sure it's happening on on some cable stations, although I I'm not a big TV watcher, so I'd have to sort of scour it. But that was that was that struck me as a loss, not just for African Americans, but I think a loss for all of us.
2: So how do we think about this idea of We would consider it to be an African-American play or a black play. I'm thinking like August Wilson's History Cycle, you know, those kinds of things where where you as an artistic director or even a new play director are looking at stories that may be relevant for a community, but may be challenging for communities to hear. Right. Right. I mean, I think it goes back to this idea of of and this isn't speaking about the community in which we live, but this line from Thurgood where he says Sometimes I'm just so tired of trying to save the white man's soul, right? I mean, at what point – I'm in in this dynamic of story and messaging and economics, and how do you get that to fit?
3: Right. Um, I think one of the things that's happened in the – particularly in the theater landscape, and I think it's, it's happening in, in writing too, is that African-American writers are no longer feeling the need to write to explain the experience to people who haven't lived that experience. They are simply writing their experience and inviting people to come in and learn and experience it with the characters. And I think you know the writer Toni Morrison had a great deal to do with this. Is, is that you know she said I'm I'm writing I'm writing novels that that I wanted to see as an African American. And I think through the the sheer power, skill, talent, beauty, passion of her writing, she invited so many people in and was was so lauded that she really in many ways change the way that African-American writers and creators are able to express themselves. And I think you think about someone like Spike Lee as a filmmaker. uh, I remember the first time I saw a Spike Lee film, and I heard characters expressing things uh, in a way that would be known within that working-class African-American community, and other people outside of that would have to figure out what it meant. And uh, eventually they did because of the sheer power of the work. And then you think about someone like August Wilson as a playwright or even Lynn Nottage uh, as a playwright, You know, the only living uh, American female playwright with two Pulitzer Prizes, is that they're not writing from the margins. They're writing from the center of an experience. And they're writing it in such a particular and artistic way that people can't help but be engrossed in those and learn or experience what those characters experience by the sheer presence and power of what those writers are creating. Um, And to me, that is a leap forward when we no longer have to explain who we are to you, that there is enough information out there for you to come to us and for you to to figure it out and to learn and to be drawn into the power of those characters' complexities and experiences and challenges. So
2: is that complicated by a divisive political culture in
3: which we live? I think it currently is. I mean, if you if you look at what's happening in Florida, AP classes are having to change or, or we look at their curriculum or content because we're afraid of offending people or it's afraid of putting out a message. Let's face it, American history is African-American history. African-American history is American history. You know, 500 years ago... At the same time that Europeans came here from Europe, African-Americans or people from Af- of African descent came here. In fact, Columbus and Magellan uh, uh, and Balboa, if you look at their diaries, they will tell you they saw evidence of African people here before they got here. <laughs> So we have always been here, or we've been on this continent before Europeans. So the, the, those things are not separate. But what has happened is, you know, the who gets to tell the stories? I want to say to the victors, I'll say the conquerors get to tell the story. And... Having African-Americans and the African-American history and achievements, um, and even and not only just achievements but also um, the harsh treatment as part of that narrative did not necessarily serve the story of the majority. So we were left out, which is why, for example, we have things like African-American History Month because it is important for everyone to know that despite the challenges, here are the great things that people have done in this country utilizing this country's resources and despite the challenges still were able to achieve. And I think it's important that we also talk about celebrating the achievements of African Americans, and not just African Americans celebrating those achievements, but all Americans celebrating those achievements. Because when African Americans achieve, it is a sign that we, as a country and as we we as a nation, have progressed beyond beyond Jim Crow South and beyond segregation. Because if one group of us that was that was so put down can achieve, that means we all have evolved. And that's why we all should be celebrating these achievements and these writers and these works and these songs. And and not just looking at the horrible things, but celebrating the joy and the achievements.
2: Well, I think that's one of the great lessons that we can learn as human beings, right, is that
3: celebrating the success and the
2: achievements of one person or individual or whatever doesn't mean that you're not that you're taking away from somebody else. Absolutely I think that's not. the the world in which we're in. Where I celebrate, we we talk about African American history, but somehow that takes away what we're talking about somewhere else. And really, it's a it's a very comprehensive and synergistic moment that creates the fabric of this amazing country in which we live.
3: Absolutely.
2: And 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 going into that is our our, our next break. And I'm so glad <laughs> you chose this song, as you you and I have talked about this. As you know, that I teach. This, this Sam Cooke is one of my absolute, uh, most incredible poets in, in the world in which we live, taken from us uh, and too, soon. too soon. But uh, this song is A Change Is Gonna Come. Do you want to talk a little bit, a moment about it or two before we roll it?
3: You know, it's interesting. I know less about the song. I mean, obviously, I know its history in the context it was, in which it was written and written in the Civil Rights Movement, and that is so evident in the lyrics about the hope that change will happen no matter what, the belief that change is just around the corner or it's, it's going to happen in the future. And, and, and what he sings in that powerful, simple voice is, I know, I believe, I hope. In many ways, that is sort of you know, almost endemic to the American experience, right? That a belief in something better and, and the hope that some things are going to change. Um, but what I, uh, not knowing so much about the history of when Sam Cooke wrote the song or the first time or, or how it was written, but I know how it makes me feel which is why I chose it and I I have a hard time listening to the song without crying because it is so full of hope and I know how far we've come and I also believe we have to be involved in making the change that is going to come and that's been a guide of my life so I think the song makes me feel in a way that other songs don't make me feel thank
2: you all right let's hear it. change is going to come by sam cook <laughs>
5: And I say, Brother, help me, please. But he winds up.
1: That was A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke on Thunder 91. This is the Apex Radio Hour, and I'll turn it back to you, Ryan.
2: Thanks, Evan. I, I think it's interesting, you know, as we listen to that song, A Change Is Gonna Come. It, it reminds me of these, and, and as we've talked about story and, and American stories and, and those kinds of things, it reminds me of a series of plays that I'm, I'm fascinated with that that create these kind of fictional meetings right I mean the the meeting which is a play about Malcolm and Martin coming together there's plays of Dr. King and and other people meeting there's the very famous you know which is not a fictional meeting but a million dollar quartet you know where Elvis and Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins and Jerry Lee meet and there's one of my favorites called Ella and her fellow Frank about Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald meeting in Pre limbo heaven or whatever it is, but I, I like these stories that that make us think of taking these fiction, these real characters, putting them in situations that that kind of compare ideas together, right? And, and it causes us to think differently about this. And of course, the one that comes to mind is you know one night in Miami, which is again mm. the 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 story that you wish you could be a fly on the wall, right? With Malcolm and Cassius Clay, who will become Muhammad Ali and Sam Cook and uh, Jim Brown, Jim Brown who. Yeah, it's it's amazing to think about. So I bring that up because I want to talk ask you about selection of plays and stories. You read a lot of plays lot and I'm sure of some of them plays. are really good and some of them are really bad. But what do you look for in
3: in something that you think that will resonate? Number one, I think I look for a story that has not necessarily been told before. And if that story has been told before, I look for an interesting way in which this playwright has chosen to tell it. I look for interesting and dynamic characters within that play. And I also particularly think it's important that playwrights recognize that characters can be flawed, uh, just as humans are flawed, and that characters are complex and and that we as humans are not easy, nor should their characters be easy. Uh, I look for plays in which the the playwright has created a complete world that is in which that world there are uh, consistencies in style and in tone and in the rules of how that world is created, if the playwright chooses to break those rules within that within that structure is for a very particular reason and it's a way that shocks me and that is earned. I look to be gobsmacked and awestruck by the choices of characters and what they do within those plays. And I also look for a play in which the ending is deserved by all that has come before it. <laughs> yeah. So have you ever read a play where you've
2: thought, this is amazing, but there's just no way we can pull this off?
3: No way we can pull it off or no way we can produce it? <laughs> well, yeah, <I> guess <laughs> those are two different things. That is true.
2: <laughs> Produce, and I'm not talking about here in Cedar City. I'm talking about in general, in, in in wherever you've done this before. Is that are, are are there pieces of drama that are just either so raw or but but just you just can't figure out a way to translate that in in an economic fashion?
3: I think that you may not be able to produce a play with all the production values of a Broadway show, but if the story is there and strong enough, then a an inventive or creative director along with a playwright and really great actors can figure out how to tell that story there is robert o'hara is currently mostly known as a theater director uh, in new york and on broadway but he also is a playwright of some note and one of his big first big successes was his play called insurrection holding history and in that play he says the bed takes off and it flies from modern time back to the antebellum south. And on that stage, that bed is to fly with two, two characters on that bed. I was like, okay, well, how do we make a bed fly back 150 years in time? <laughs> I mean, in this case, it was done with lights and sheets and actors creating a cloud effect um, and music to all take us there. Um, and if the performers and the design. We're all committed to making that happen, and we tell the audience this is, you know, the audience starts in one place, and when, that, when that, that crash sound happened and everybody looks over at the bed, and we realize we're in a different place, then we've made that journey. And that is the beauty of storytelling, uh, and I think particularly in theaters. We invite the audience to fill in the holes, but we create enough magic in front of them that they are willing and excited to fill in the holes themselves. You know,
2: that's what I like about it. It's it's been in my mind about our conversation. What I think is really important about about theater and what I try to communicate in some ways to my history students is this idea that that while individuals matter, certainly while individual action in the face of injustice matters, that we are all part of the same collaboration is critical. Yes. Right. That, That you've just talked this idea. You can have the best actor in the world or the best director or the best designer. But if you're not all collaborating, you're not going to make the great story. Right. And I think that that as we talk about our history and we talk about what we're doing in our own lives, I mean, none of us exist in a vacuum, right? I mean, I would like to tell you know my students that you know we've all put thrown rocks into the water, and in some ways, and sometimes you're the rock in someone's life, and sometimes you're a ripple that comes out there. And and I think that as we think about the, I'm using a lot of metaphors here, but the tapestry that is our lives, we all just kind of wander in and out. And it's about collaboration. It's about that that we all work together. The strength of America isn't the Horatio Alger story, mm-hmm. that you can pull up your socks and one person can change the world. It's that we're all working on the backs of others. Right. Charles Houston and Thurgood Marshall is another example.
3: Yeah. You know, I, I think that's probably one of the reasons personally I'm drawn to theater is because, and I think that's why in many ways it makes sense for someone like me who spent a number of years as an activist also to be involved in theater, because none of what i did in my activism did i do alone that there were always other people who were filling a lot of roles to make that happen um and who really believed collectively that change could happen or that we had to work together to be to have an impact and in theater you cannot even a one person show like they're good has many many people working to make it happen to tell that story and the more we work collaboratively the more we share a single vision the more we share that vision and allow people to come into that work and to bring themselves and to bring their artistry from the person who is sewing the costume to the actor on stage who has to embody the main character the more everybody is allowed to contribute and bring himself or herself or their self to the work the better the work is going to be
2: yeah i mean exclamation point right and 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 not only i think the better the work is going to be the better it's going to be received yes. by those, because you know the audiences are collaborative in this process. Absolutely, as well. and I think that's what's brilliant about the new play program at the festival. Right, is that it really creates this this influx of audience participating with the playwright, with the actors, with the director to
3: change. Well, it. And you know the way we which we do in the play development under under my auspices um, is that it invites the audience to do a lot of the work in the trust. Uh, when I took over the new play development program, which we call Words Cubed, as in you know Hamlet's words, 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 I made a very conscious effort to. Uh, the way it works is that we we choose two plays, and in subsequent weeks, we invite each playwright to come spend a week in rehearsal with a director, a dramaturg, and the actors. And during the course of that week, to sit at a table, to hear that play, to read that play, to change that play, at the end of that rehearsal day, the, re- the playwright goes away, writes based on what he's heard, uh, what she's heard in that rehearsal room, to come back the next day with new pages and present them in- to the director and, the, and the, uh, the actors and to hear what those new pages are and to shape that story and to toss out things and to add things and to tweak things the emphasis on the word, on the play during that week. And at the end of that week, we don't attempt to stage that play. We put the actors at music stands, and we have somebody read the stage directions that are necessary to understand the story. And then the actors act those that story standing at music stands. And so it is by its very nature participatory with the audience because we the audience has to listen to the stage directions and envision where the actors or what that's characters might be doing while the actors are standing there. Um, and in that way, it is inviting the audience in to be active participants in how that story is told. And the most the emphasis really becomes on the storytelling and on the words and not trying to create the pictures but create the story that can later be fully staged but in that moment inviting that audience to tell us what they're hearing and what they're getting out of it.
2: And it becomes part of
3: your story. It becomes part of their story.
2: Well, our time is rapidly coming to an end, and we could talk much more about lots of different things, but— we like we have a, a final segment that we really like to do here at the Apex Radio Hour, which is what we call what's bringing you joy. And so we're, we're joined. We're going to ask you, but we're also joined by obviously our brilliant radio engineer, Reese, our producer, Sophie Javage, our associate producer, Evan Miller. And uh, we're just going to go around the table. That work for you? Sure. So, Derek Charles Livingston, what are you currently watching, reading or listening to that is bringing you joy?
3: I swear this is not a shameless plug, but <laughs> there are two shows we're doing at the festival this year. You know, first of all, you know, I, I, am a, I love Shakespeare, and so I'm very excited about being able to do Time of Athens and Coriolanus, particularly because they're not done a whole lot. And I think there's such, even for Shakespeare, such complex plays with such complex characters. But I'm myself going to be directing Raisin in the Sun, you know, which is a great historical American drama. And we're also doing this musical called Emma based on Jane Austen's Emma. And reading those plays and listening to – reading particularly Raisin over and over again and listening to Emma are just right now are really bringing me joy because the music in Emma is, is so light and so perfect and so smart and so erudite and so witty that every time I hear – the, the cast album that was cut and and also thinking about how it's going to play at our stage in front of our audiences it just it it actually makes me giggle it doesn't just, just make me smile um and then you know reading Raisin in the Sun and knowing the power of the younger family and the fact of of their working together and sticking together and all wanting a better life for themselves and doing that as a family and then at the end achieving black home ownership, which was, you know, literally prohibited in this country for many people and them reaching that part of the dream um, as a celebration of achievement. And again, not not delving into to black trauma, but, uh, but black joy. Um, is something that I am so excited to, a journey I'm, I'm embarking on now as a director in terms of casting and can't wait to get into the rehearsal room with it.
2: Cool. Cool. Thank you. Reese Whitaker, what are you currently watching, reading, or listening to that is bringing you joy? So I have two things.
0: Right now is a big week in sports. you know, NBA trade deadline, NHL All-Star weekend, NFL Pro Bowl, NFL Super Bowl. LeBron James also broke the all-time scoring record in the NBA, <laughs> so that was, I've been watching that, but for a movie, I watched this uh, film on Netflix. It's a Jonah Hill production. It's called You People. And what it is is it's about interracial and interreligious marriages. So Jonah Hill plays a white Jewish man, and he's getting married to an African-American Muslim. And they're cool with it, but it's really the parents' reaction to it. that That's the plot of the movie. And it's it's a great message, and it's kind of behind this rom-com aesthetic so it's entertaining but it's also very powerful at the same time
2: very cool thank you sophie javage my friend what are you currently watching reading or listening to that is bringing you joy well to kind of go off of the rom-com spiel um, with Valentine's Day coming up, this week is like all Galentine stuff. So I came home last night and my roommates were having a little Galentine's Day party and they were watching Pride and Prejudice and I just sat and was Jane watching Austin. it. Jane Austen, oh my gosh, so good. I just, Pride and Prejudice is just, it holds a near and dear place to my heart. So I would say that. Good, good, thank you. I just was talking about Mr. Collins the other day. Ugh. Evan Miller, what are you currently watching, reading, or listening to that is bringing you joy?
1: Um, right now, uh, music generally always brings me joy, um, but an artist that I've really enjoyed lately is Jack Johnson. Um, a lot of his stuff is just really uh, positive, upbeat, and it's been bringing me a lot of joy.
0: Cool. All right, Ryan. You through a loop right there, didn't I?
2: I did. You did. What are you currently <laughs>
0: watching, reading, or listening to that's bringing you joy?
2: I'm going to say this, and you're going to think it's corny. And when you listen to the song, you might think it is as well. But this is really bringing, this song has really brought me a lot of joy and happiness the last couple days. And it's a song called Happy Heart from Andy Williams, recorded in 1969. And I promise you, if you listen to that song, you cannot help but smile. Speaking of music now, thank you for the transition, Reese. We are going to co-out go on one of the songs that you chose, Derek Angel by Sarah McLaughlin. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
3: Well, it, it's it's funny because we just talked about joy, but uh, <laughs> so uh, you know when I was very much in the throes of working um, in HIV prevention and working at an AIDS service organization, I was always also surrounded a lot by death, by uh, because this was before you know the cocktail that allowed people to live with HIV, and so at the time it was you know people got HIV and then they developed AIDS and and lost people, and um, you know I lost I lost thirty friends before I turned thirty years old. Including intimate partners and friends and coworkers, and in the uh, early '90s there, were, there was a lot of angel iconography, um, and in fact, Tony Kushner's play "Angels in America" is from the early '90s, and it also uh, focuses largely on the AIDS crisis in America. And uh, Sarah McLachlan's song came out shortly thereafter, um, and uh, the this song always reminds me of, of the people that we lost during that period, and. The greater loss, I think, we as a community suffered as a result of that. And during that period, I would often have the experience where I would call somebody and I would get a, call, a return call from a friend or relative and said, Oh, you didn't know. And I had this very clear memory of being in Los Angeles and having tried to reach my friend Clay in New York, um, who I dated briefly when I lived in Philadelphia, and getting a call back from a friend of his and her saying, Oh, yes. Clay died, you know, a month ago. And I didn't have time to process it. I remember I was sitting in my car, in my garage, and this song came on. And I just burst into tears because it reminded me of all the loss that we were dealing with at the time. And it's a song that still reminds me of what that period was like, but it also reminds me of how far we've moved beyond that period, too.
2: Thank you. Thank you for listening, everyone. Angel from Sarah McLaughlin.
6: Oh, beautiful release Memories seep from my veins Let me be
0: Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us every Thursday at 3 p.m. right here on Thunder 91. We would love for you to come to our events on campus. For more information, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next time, that was the Apex Hour on Thunder 91.1.